Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mark Ellis's World War II London is a place where crime flourishes alongside the heroism of firefighters and fighter pilots. His charismatic detective Frank Merlin has to deal with rapists and racketeers amidst the carnage of falling bombs. Hello there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Mark talks about one of the best kept secrets of wartime Britain, how the blackout and the blitz led to a surge in crime all over the land. But before we hear from Mark, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode are available at the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Mark's books and his website, a full transcript of our discussion, and information on how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Mark. Hello there, Mark, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Jenny. Mark, I'd like to start off right at the beginning, the best place to start, and that is, was there a once-upon-a-time moment when you realised that you had to write fiction or your life would be the lesser for it? And if so, what was the catalyst? Um, I, I, I wouldn't put it that way. I think when I was young, um, I was a voracious reader. And I, um, after going through various childish ambitions, like wanting to be a cowboy or a comedian or something like that, I, I, I did have an ambition to be a writer. And I wrote in school and, and then in college and did get compliments from various people that I, I might have some potential. However, I went to do law in Cambridge. Um, I, I became a barrister. Very quickly, um, life sort of took over. Uh, I, when I, for a brief while, when I was a barrister, I used to try and get up at six in the morning and write, and I wrote about half a novel then. But then it was just too much for me. And then after being a barrister, I went into business for other people and then for myself, and um, the, the, mo- the moment when I knew I, I had had to do it and would be able to do it was when I eventually had a computer company with a partner and we sold it. And um, I said, well, this is if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And that's when I started. That was about 10 years ago. The first novel in your Frank Merlin series was Prince's Gate. But was that also the first one you wrote or were there others before it? First one I ever completed. Yes. I, as I say, when I was younger, I had a few sort of half-hearted attempts and got halfway through something. But uh, no, that was the first one I ever completed. So how did you settle on a historical crime mystery genre as the one you wanted to work in? Um, Well, I I do read all sorts of uh, genre, but I I, I suppose when you're working hard in in a business career, you want um, to have something light to read and it takes your mind off things. And I I always found crime particularly good at that books. And at the same time, I've always had a fascination for history. So when I had the time to write and decided to write, I gave it a hard think as well, because um, historical crime, it's a, it's a growing and improving and, and increasingly popular um, area. And um, 
I must admit, I wanted to ful fulfill myself artistically, but the idea of making money was not completely irrelevant. <laughs> so I thought I might have better sales, but also this is what this, this it was really that context which attracted me and which I had ideas. What specifically attracted you to World War II? Well, I, I suppose in a way it was, um, so I, 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 my parents both lived through the war. My father was in the Navy um, and served abroad in, in various places like Africa. Um, and my mother used to, was, my mother was a teenager at the beginning of the war and just got her first job during the war. And she was a, uh, she was a secretary in um, the local railway office, actually. That's where she met my father after the war. And she used to tell me these stories. Uh, like many railway employees um, throughout the world, I think, if you, one of the perks is you get free passes to go places. And she used to take, uh, get free passes to go up to London with her friends. And they'd go dancing and go to the tea dances and whatever. And they could stay very cheaply in a, a railway hotel. And I, I would listen to these stories. And I said, but wasn't London being bombed at that time? And she said, oh, yes, but we didn't care about that. So that stories like that and other stories uh, intrigued me in the sense of um, ordinary life went on during the war. And I became fascinated with the idea of ordinary life going on in the war. And of course, that, 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 that included crime. And, you know, people argued the world, the people in London and, and Britain, um, for propaganda reasons, obviously, during the war, and then to a certain extent after, are presented as rather saintly people. Well, of course, people are not that saintly, and um, I was intrigued to, 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 to learn about and then to write about um, how people got on during the war. And obviously, I, I chose then to do that in the context of having a police officer investigating um, mysteries. Yes. Yes, and I must say it was news to me. I had really just taken on board that heroic idea of the Londoners in the Blitz, them all helping one another, and I'm sure that happened as well. But I hadn't heard about the surge in crime until I started reading your series. Well, yes, obviously there were saintly, heroic people at all levels of life, ranging from Churchill at the top to firemen and policemen and ordinary people who were heroic. But by the same token, there were, there were plenty who weren't. And um, indeed, as you mentioned, and I hadn't known this until I started researching the first books, uh, between 1939 and 1945, crime boomed by 60% in Britain. Um, all, all, all sorts of uh, areas, violent crime boomed, um, but it, it, theft boomed, it's everything. And there was gang warfare and so on. But if you think about it, it's not so surprising. First of all, we had the blackout. And the blackout, um, for any of your listeners who aren't aware what that meant, it meant that there was no light in any of the cities or towns. Uh, so that uh, it was made that the task of bombing uh, us was made uh, more difficult, and so there was the blackout, and then we had rationing, and rationing inevitably gave rise to a black market, and the black market, the criminals got involved in the black market, uh, and one had a whole new bunch of uh, crimes uh, related to the rationing, um, uh, and uh, of course the police were were stretched. Um, some policemen did go off to join the army. Merlin, uh, my character, does try, but he's told he's too old. And he has to stay around to try and battle uh, battle the villains. But um, the police were stretched, and obviously you had the Blitz, um, and, and there was they were distracted by that. And the Blitz itself, of course, gave rise to a lot of crime, because many people, when I, when I talk today uh, about it or give talks about this, 
People are always shocked when I say that looting was rife, but it was. And not just looting by criminals, looting by ordinary people, looting even by firemen and, and uh, air raid wardens and whatever. So it, it's a sort of um, uh, very fecund area for stories about crime. You've got three books published in the Frank Merlin saga now. You must be enjoying a sense of achievement to have been selected as one of the must-read top 100 books for 2017 in the Kirkus Review. That's quite an achievement. Not only do they praise your plotting, but they compliment you on your historical research as well. Um, yes and yes. I, I, um, the way I write my books, of course, the first book... Being the first one, I didn't really know what my method was, so my method evolved. But now I'm on my fourth book. I can say what my method is. And I, I'm in the middle. I usually do a couple of months' worth of uh, research, um, and often that research gives me the idea for the story. So as as you know, and, and um, your listeners may not know, but each of my books is in, set in a specific period, and I'm taking Frank Merlin through the war. So the first book is set in January 1940, which is the phony war period. The second one is uh, September 1940, which is the Battle of Britain and the beginning of the Blitz. The one I've just had published, Merlin at War, is set in June 1941, which is just after the Battle of Crete and just before Hitler invaded Russia. And the new one I'm working on now is set in December 1941, which is when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Um, so I, I read around the history. So, for example, I'm now reading, uh, I just read a book called December 1941, which is a wonderful history book explaining all, all about what everything that went on militarily. And then I read social histories. <clears throat> there are lots of very good social histories set in London, about London, about Britain, and, and other things that come to my mind, I, I, I read. And then uh, I don't I don't really have the plot in my mind at the beginning. I just sit down. I've got all this historical fact sitting there and I, I kick off and, 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 the, and the, the ideas come to me. And in each book, you select a fascinating central core that has got the kernels of history embedded in it. In the first book, it's Joseph Kennedy as the American ambassador to Britain, his attitude to the war and the way that he tried to influence public opinion. And then in the second book, you make quite a feature of the consignment of Spanish gold that Stalin got his hands on. So each time there is a historical nub for the story. Yes, yes, indeed. And, and sometimes it comes out of nowhere. Um, um, in, in the case of Stalin's gold, um, I was had kicked off and I, I wanted to write something about the Polish. You know, there was a famous uh, squadron in the, uh, in the RAF in the war. A Polish squadron, which was very successful in destroying German planes, and uh, I was interested in writing about somehow bringing them into the story. And I went to Poland to do some research, and and uh, I sort of kicked it off. I hadn't really picked up on the the gold item, but I was uh, one day in the library, um, a, bit, a bit stuck, and I picked up a history of Spain and learnt about the, the true story that Spain had uh, been asked by St when Stalin was supporting the anti-Franco people in the Civil War, the left wing. Um, he, he provided military help. And at, at some point he said, you know, you're not giving me anything for this. I'd like to look after your goal for you. And of course, Spain, given its history, had huge uh, reserves of real gold. And uh, the gold was shipped to Stalin. And even more than that, I discovered in a footnote um, I hope this people who haven't read the book, probably this is going a bit esoteric, but part of the story is about the, the, the theft of some of this gold. And I found in a footnote that when gold was being shipped to Russia from Spain, 
there was a, a, an error in the manifest. And in other words, the shipping, the shipping manifest showed that a certain amount went and a certain amount arrived and there was a discrepancy. And that gave me the idea for someone stealing that gold. Tammy, do you think your previous career as a lawyer and businessman has given you any advantage as a writer? Um, I think um, to a certain extent in the case of Merlin at War, I, I, one of the characters is a, is a slightly shady businessman and um, it reflects some of my knowledge of encounters of shady businessmen in my business life. And also there's quite a lot of technicality about, about doing business, which I know which enabled me to write that part of the plot line. Um, and I think, obviously, being a lawyer, that helps for your thought processes and logical thinking. And I think that's quite important in, in writing, writing a thriller where you've got to develop a plot and, and keep a lot of characters in hand. You alluded at the beginning to perhaps when you started writing 10 years ago, historical mysteries were not quite such a popular area as they are now but they are growing in popularity and World War II in particular is enjoying quite a renaissance. What do you think the attraction is for people born after this period? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, distance. I, I remember when I was growing up, I lived with my, my father died, unfortunately, when I was rather young and I lived with my mother and my grandparents. My grandfather had been in the trenches for four years of the World War One. But um, I never asked him any questions to my great regret. And to a certain extent, it was a bit too close. You know, what I'm thinking about now, I was born in the 50s and, and the First World War was 30 or 40 years before. Um, 10 or 20 years later, I was fascinated by World War I, but he was no longer there to talk to him about, uh, about it. And in the same way, there's, there's a distance of time that World War II now is a long time ago. And most of the people who, lived, who participated in it and adults are dying. So um, I think, um, plus, um, of course, there are films, that, you know, that I think there's like the umpteenth film of Churchill just coming out. It's, it's an absolutely fascinating period and, and, uh, and people are just getting hold of it, not just in England, but in, you know, when I go to America, it's, it's sort of growing interest. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what it's like in Australasia but, and, and New Zealand, but I'm, I'm guessing from what you're saying that also there's a lot of interest there. Yeah, there is interest, although perhaps as one of the other writers that I've spoken to, M.K. Mary Todd, who writes World War II and World War I historicals, has commented, the Americans in particular are much more interested in World War II because they played a bigger part in it. Whereas Commonwealth countries like Australia, Canada, where she's from, and New Zealand, were also very involved in World War I, so they do pay more attention to World War I. Yes, no, I, I know her. I wrote, she also has a, um, a sort of blog magazine, which I wrote an article for. Yeah. Yes, well, well um, my, my latest book came out, it came out in, um, in the summer, early summer in England, and it came out in October in, in America. So I went for a, a uh, well, I've, I've actually, actually been twice for a couple of, uh, uh, you know, book, book signings and uh, talks and, and things like that. And yes, it, it, you know, it is, it is, there is a lot of interest. Frank Merlin is also part Spanish. It's an interesting little twist that you've given to him that gives an extra dimension to his character. Tell me, what do people say they like about him? Um, uh, well, uh, the people, a lot of people do find that, that, that his background um, a little bit intriguing, and, and, um, and that came to me out of the blue. I was on holiday in Spain, and originally he was an out-and-out Cockney. And I thought, well, this is a little bit boring. I, I could think of various Cockney detectives. And I was in Spain, and I know Spain quite well. 
And I just thought, why not? And um, as you as you say, I, I do get the opportunity uh, he, to give him the odd uh, Spanish swear word, and I have his backstory, which um, you know is, I think, quite interesting. And um, it makes him a little bit more of a maverick, I think, in, in that sense. And then that, and people say they like the, the fact that he's a bit of a maverick. Now, turning away from talking about the specific books to a more general discussion of your writing, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success? Well, I, I think I have been asked this question before, and I guess the, it, it, it may be a rather boring answer, but the one thing that is essential to success in writing, probably in most things actually, is perseverance. Because um, it is very difficult in, the, in these days to get a book published. And I went through what I think nearly all writers go through. You go through a whole uh, series of rejection slips and uh, or odd comments about the book, which indicate that whoever's rejecting them haven't actually read much of it. And, and you have to have a thick skin and you have to stick at it. And, um, uh, you know, I have been at this for ten, ten, around 10 years. And, and now I, I, I'm, a, I'm a published author and... I have sales around the world and, and things are going in the right direction, but it's taken a long, a long, long time to get there. And I'm very grateful that I got there because many people don't get there. So it's perseverance. Perseverance is the thing, I think. Are you able to devote full time to it now or do you have other interests you still like to maintain? No, no, I, I devote pretty much full time to it. I, I, I do have, uh, you know, I have a few residue business interests um, where I have investments and I am, I'm involved to a minimal degree. But no, basically, my working day revolves entirely around writing. I, um, you know, I get up, I take, I have a ten year old son, I take him to school, um, and after that, I go and do a bit of exercise, and then I sit down and I write for usually four hours. And then uh, have a break. Then, then I, I usually find that's about as much as I could do in terms of creative writing. But after I've done that um, four hours, which you know can equate to um, a thousand words, or it can equate to three thousand words, or two thousand words, you know, or even on once I think I did four thousand words, which is a heck of a lot to do in, in four hours. But you know, I, 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 you've got to sit down. You've got to give the time. Some days you'll be good. Some days you'll be bad. Um, but and then later in the day is usually checking up and also I, you know I continue to do my research as I go along because questions come to me and 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 that's my working day. You didn't consider indie publishing? No, I did. I did. That's how I got. That's how I got going at the beginning. Yeah. No, no. I uh, my first novel I couldn't get it published and I got I got uh, I self published it with a with a very good firm in the UK, and then I got a, a, a sort of a smaller publishing firm which was related to a PR firm did the did, uh, they took uh, they took the they re republished the, both of my books and now I have a, a, a you know traditional publishing firm called Accent Press which um, is the largest publishing firm in Wales which is nice because I'm Welsh and uh, they they are they are actually re, they are re, republishing in the next few months the three books again and um, they have commissioned me to write another three in the series I've got to deliver three more by uh, 2020, so I'm going to be very busy because normally I, with my books, I take about 18 months to two years, so I've got to speed up a bit. If you were going to organise a literary magical mystery tour for your series, where would you trip advise people to go? I'm thinking of places maybe like Bletchley Park, the code-breaking facility, for example. Uh, well, I think Bletchley Park is well worth going to, and also um, from a touristic viewpoint, Churchill's War Rooms are fascinating. That's in in, cent in central London, 
Um, and um, I think Ditchley Park features in Merlin at War. Ditchley Park was a grand estate uh, not far away from where I have a house in Oxford, which was owned by someone called Ronald Tree, and which Churchill used as his weekend place because the security forces told him not to go to Chequers, which is in uh, Kent, south of London, and is, quite, is, is in quite open country, and they, they thought it was too easy a target for the Luftwaffe. So he used to go to Ditchley Park, and that's very nice. I mean, on a broader level, um, I do have quite a lot of international uh, scale in, in the various books. And I think in the beginning, the only, the only real um, foreign um, act, action is Joe Kennedy sunbathing in Florida. But in, in my second book, um, you know, there's action in, uh, in, in Warsaw. As I say, I went to Warsaw. There's action in uh, Moscow, and I went to Moscow to do so. That's one of the good things is a place you haven't been and you need to go you know, it's, it's justifiable to go. So I did that. And, uh, and of course, there's a bit of action in Spain. And in this recent book, um, uh, I've got Vichy, Paris, Buenos Aires, New York. Um, but, but, you know, the, the core of the stories is always about London. And um, I was asked to do um, um, an article for a, uh, another blog um, called Trip Fiction. I don't know if you know that one, but it, it's it it it, it 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 basically supports writers and talks about people's books as you do, and and but links it into um, places. So that I had to go out and take a few pictures of of London briefly. Like I, t- I took a picture of Merlin's favorite pub and and things like this. And what I realized is that um, a lot of the London that was in the war you know, probably 80% of it is still there. Yes, there was a lot of terrible bombing. Um, and London after the war was uh, had all these bomb sites and whatever. But all the core of the sto- of my stories, the Houses of Parliament, River Thames, Scotland Yard, um, uh, central London, you know, it, it's, it's still all there. We'll have to definitely put a link in the show notes to that trip fiction blog. It sounds really interesting. Now for a change of pace, tell me, is there a mystery in your own life that could be the plot line for a book? Okay. <laughs> well, I, um, I think that, that I, I've sort of touched on it earlier, that, that I was involved, I, I did have a business career, in, 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 in um, not so much a mystery, but I did come across people who had their own mysteries and uh, had complicated personal and business lives, which I think I've been able, already been able to draw upon in, in, terms, of, um, in terms of my stories. In my own life, specifically, I, I, I really don't think there's any. You know, I haven't I haven't murdered anyone or burgled anyone yet, nor has it nor has it happened to me. Um, so, obviously, I've had the normal ups and downs that any normal person has in personal life. But um, fortunately, I have been a long way away from the police station and crime, except when you were involved as a barrister. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, of course. When I was when I was a barrister, I certainly was involved with crime. Yes, but the long time since I did that now. Now turning to Mark as reader, the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading and it was partly inspired because people are looking more for series reads these days. Have you ever in the past been a binge reader? And if so, what were your favourites? Who were your favourites? Well, the very first thriller I think I read um, when I was about 10 um, was um, The 39 Steps by uh, John Buchan. And, of course, there are others in that series, including Green Mantle, which actually features um, in a sort of a strange way in my plot in Merlin at War. So I, I did binge read initially all of John Buchan. I suppose more recently, um, well, 
for, for a number of years, I've been a great fan of Simonon and Maigret. And I've read lots and lots of Maigret. Uh, I, I also liked, uh, like, like and liked uh, Patricia Highsmith, who wrote about Tom Ripley. Uh, are you aware, you know about Patricia Highsmith? Yes, I'm sure you do. And so I binge read most of her books. And um, Graham Greene, I've binge read most of those. So there's a long, there's a long, long list. Um, there, there are a lot of, I think it's sort of golden age of crime. There are lots of really wonderful um, writers about um, who um, I read a lot of. Um, in terms of crime, there are people in America. There are people like Michael Connolly, Robert Crace, Joe Finder, who I know and uh, is a very good writer. And there are a lot of French writers now. And I'm, I'm not so sure how many, perhaps you can advise me if there are any New Zealand writers I should look out for. I'm not sure if there are so many New Zealand genre writers who are internationally known, except in the romance area where there are some very good ones. But there are some Australian crime mystery thriller writers coming through. And closer to home for you, there's a boom in Irish crime writing and particularly women crime writers. Yes, yes, I've seen that, yes. And I, I have read a few. Um, uh, there's a, I'm not a woman, but there's a chap called John Banville who writes some books under the name Benjamin Black, and they're quite good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think on Australia, I, I believe many people have voted their best book of the year something called The Dry, which is an Australian thriller. Um, but, um, I mean, depending my writing obligations, I do read quite a lot. And I'm reading some Joe Nesbo at the moment, because obviously you've got the Scandinavians, Henning Mankell, all those people, um, very good. Uh, Joe Nesbo does, I, I'm getting to the stage with Joe Nesbo, as I'm not quite sure how many serial killers you can really read about. But um, <laughs> he's a very good writer. We're coming to the end of our time, Mark. So circling back to the beginning, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? You, my writing career we're talking about, presumably, yes. Um, you know, I'm not a great one for looking back and thinking, second-guessing myself. I mean, obviously, I would have, you know, I would have liked it if I could have got my first book published by a publishing company. But come what may, I, I, got, I went through the process and, I, I, and it eventually happened to me. Uh, and I'm very lucky because I think it's a very small percentage of people who get uh, commercially published these days. Um, uh, you know, truthfully, I can't think of anything really... Uh, the one thing you do need with writing, you know, you may have talent and you may have application, but you need a lot of luck. And um, that's the main thing. And, and perhaps I didn't have that much luck in the first few years, but I've certainly had quite a lot of it in the last couple. You've certainly been noticed by some influential writers and commentators. I'm thinking of people like the popular English historian Andrew Roberts, who's praised your work. You've come to the notice in the publishing profession. I have. I mean, that's, and that's again. That's a bit of luck. In the case of Andrew Roberts, um, I was asked um, through a friend to do a book signing for the Churchill Society of New York. This was uh, in conjunction with my. I can't remember. It was my first or my second book now, but it was a few years ago. And Andrew Roberts was, you know, associated with that, and I got to meet him, and and um, he had a look at the books, and he, he he really liked it, and was happy to give me that sort of endorsement. Um, in a slightly different way, again, with luck, um, I met Joseph Finder um, through a friend uh, who lives in Boston. And um, again, he took an interest in my books and was happy and then had a, you know, had a look and was happy to give me an excellent endorsement. And there are, there are a few others as well, English writers who've done that. 
And and then when I talk about luck, I mean, you need that sort of luck. I mean, of course, you need them to be able to like the books. <laughs> uh, but um, exactly, because they're not they're not going to do it unless they, they like it. And, and of course, now now that I've got more publicity about the books, I'm, I'm hope, you know, I'm, I'm hoping may, maybe even it's a bit, bit rich to say, but expecting that some other people might notice me, too. Of course. And, and so what's next for Mark, the writer? You have a six book deal. So you will take Merlin right through the Second World War? Yeah. Yes. No, I, I, my, my, my aim is to take him through the war. And if the books have um, the three books. The first, the, the second book is uh, nine months after, in, in terms of when it's actually set, is nine months after the first one. And then um, the third book is nine months after the uh, second one. Um, actually, the next one is going to be closer in time because I thought I, I couldn't ignore December 1941, as I mentioned uh, in the background, historical background, Pearl, Pearl Harbor. I mean, I'm not going to send Frank Merlin to Tokyo, but uh, it's going to be part there in the background that it's happening. And, and my, my aim is really to, to keep going through at six to nine month um, periods. So the three book deal I've signed, uh, you know, would probably only take me to somewhere in 1943. And maybe there'll be another three or four books, you know, if I don't drop dead or something. <laughs> there'll be there'll be another. There'll, there's probably another seven books in the series if I can do it. Yes, I was going to ask you if you saw a life beyond Merlin, perhaps turning your thoughts to a more contemporary business environment where you've also got a lot of um, experience. But it sounds like Merlin is going to keep you busy for a few years yet. He is, and and it's not not to say that I don't have other book ideas. I do I do have other book ideas, but it's just a question of you know. I, I think if I'm on the tra- trajectory, and the books, each book has become more popular than the last, and I, and I really enjoy the characters. Not like I'm bored with the character. I, I enjoy the whole process. I enjoy learning about each specific, specific period. Um, um, you know, maybe maybe in a year or two, in a couple of years, maybe I'll be bored and take the time out to write something else and then go back to it. But I, I, I'm a sort of rather, uh, you know, in legalistic terms, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sort of plodder. I'm going to keep going, and it's part of being a lawyer is you just keep at it. And I, I think I'm more likely to, to, to follow Merlin all the way through, and then, then maybe I'll have something else to write. I have I have some other ideas for historical fiction and. Um, uh, um, and, and I'd like to have a go at them, but but I think I have to get get Merlin to 1945 first. We're coming to the end, and we've really got one last question, and that is, where can readers find you online? Oh, um, I have a website. It's called it's it's uh, called markellisauthor.com. I also have I also have a Facebook author page, Mark Ellis Author page, and I have a, a personal Facebook page, and I have some readers who. who follow me on my personal facebook page um i am on twitter at mark ellis 15 um those are the main ones i'm i'm on and um i'm, I'm fairly active social on social networking so anyone's more than welcome to look up any of those yes you appear to have quite a big following well i, I, I was completely new to it all um when i went you know when i started writing and people were then interested in my books I was told, oh, you, Mark, you've got to have a social network presence. So unlike um, many of my exact contemporaries, because I'm in my 60s, I think I'm quite ahead of the game compared with many of those. <laughs> you seem to have a knack for it. Thank you, Jane. Mark, thanks so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Not at all. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Brilliant. I look forward to uh, seeing it and hearing it. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. 
You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.